Welcome to the Recapery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Hello and welcome to the Recapery. Today we continue with our coverage of The Crown on Netflix about the life of Queen Elizabeth II. This is Season 2, Episode 5, entitled Marionettes. The Netflix synopsis is this. After Elizabeth makes a tone-deaf speech at a Jaguar factory, she and the monarchy come under public attack from an outspoken lord. Here is not necessarily my rival synopsis, but my, let's call it a subtitle. Queen Elizabeth II, raised in an era of deference, has to face some uncomfortable truths about the modern world. Oh, that is good. Mine went along those lines, too. Elizabeth is forced to leap from the past to the present, taking those around her with her, and a journalist makes a rocky ascent to national treasure. <laughs> okay, we were both thinking the same thing. It's like about her going from the past to the present and being dragged there. Unwillingly is true. All right, so there is a frontal of lots of foot traffic. At first I thought it was rain, and then I realized, mm. oh no, it's people's feet. Just like every time I hear applause, you know what I picture is millions of glass marbles rolling down a stairway. Oh. Applause sounds like that to me. Yeah, it does. So anyway, it's actually lots of foot traffic. So we open on a newspaperman hawking his wares with the headline, Peer attacks the queen. Peer attacks the queen. So the newspaperman is doing a brisk business and evidently a regular customer is buying all the papers, which is unusual for him. This guy, you know, he knows this newspaper man because he says, good morning, Jack. He like greets him and you know that he's a regular. He kind of looks like Malcolm McDowell. As far as we know, he's a mystery man who likes to read the newspaper. <laughs> so the papers, all of the papers he's just bought appear at the customer's breakfast table, but no breakfast. His wife comes in to give him breakfast. She's got an egg and some toast, and he kind of shoes her away and says, I shan't be having any today. And his wife smiles so fondly at him as if he's just told her that her booty looked great or something. <laughs> Seriously, the look on her face is like, oh, you. <laughs> it's just crazy. I just was like, what is happening? Well, at first I thought it was his housekeeper because she wouldn't, like, a wife might go, I just you know, made all this breakfast for you and you don't want it. But then I realized he called her dear. So that is definitely his wife. But yeah, she smiles and turns and walks away like, ha ha ha. Maybe she saw all those papers and she knew what that meant. You know, for him, if he, all those papers are out, he's on a mission, right? And he does. He has the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, another paper. They all have the same type of headline. Peer attacks the queen. He says her speaking is a pain in the neck and her utterances convey a priggish schoolgirl. So he's pouring over all of these papers with bad messages about the queen. And then he takes off his glasses, which in this show is the universal sign of I have had it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And he he did. I have to say there was another headline because I freezed it to, you know, write down the headlines. There was another one that had me fall down a rabbit hole. This is what happens. This is why these take so long to research. Eartha Kitt sued over champagne spree was the other headline on the paper. And I was like, what? Apparently, Eartha Kitt and her friends were at a New York City club called the African Room. She was given a bill higher than what she expected for three or four splits of champagne. The bill was about $137. And we're talking like the small bottles of champagne. Right. She refused to pay it because she didn't get an itemized bill. She wanted to know how they got to this $137. So she refused to pay it. And the bar owner sued her for $200,000. <laughs> 
Who won? Do we know? I don't think he won. The one article I could find was behind a paywall. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to subscribe to this paper just to find out who won. Because, you know, this is like a little rabbit hole. But Right. So he's getting ready, this man. He has pictures of Queen Elizabeth on the wall. He has medals on his chest. There is also a close-up of a badge with the initials L-E-L. Yeah, he's a big fan of Queen Elizabeth. I mean, who is going to have an 8 by 10 picture in their bedroom unless it's somebody that you're really, really fond of? He also had this really cool Art Deco mirror that he was looking into. But overall, the room looked like an older person with, you know, furniture from different eras in it. I thought that it looked an awful lot like my grandparents' bedroom would have looked. So I thought that was really good for the stuff. The sets of these are always really good. But the LEL pen is the League of Empire Loyalists. And at 1957, when this is happening, it was kind of a newish group. It was only formed in 1954. It's a group of conservatives. Um, like super right-wing conservatives to the point where the actual conservative party is like, Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was mostly made up of retired military men. And their ranks kind of peaked around this time because then they started dying off. <laughs> but they were like full on queen. They love the monarchy and they defend it. They feel that that's their job. Now, I have to tell you that there is a darker side to this, like just pride in the queen, pride in the empire. They are very anti-immigration. They are absolutely jingoistic, like Britain first, Britain first. We've heard that in other contexts and in <laughs> other countries, but this was an alarming development and an alarming fringe group. They are very anti-Semitic also. And in the wake of World War II, that's really not an acceptable place to be. And they're hiding behind all these medals. You know, they're hiding this view that British citizens are superior. Hello, what does that sound exactly like? They just fought a war over it. They're militant old guys. Militant old guys. I guess that's, <laughs> that's the short version. <laughs> so he's off. He's off on some kind of mission. His wife sees him off and he hops onto the bus really agilely, I thought. And people on the bus are slagging the queen and the metal man is not happy. We see him um, with his face on on the bus and then we see him stalking angrily along the street. There's a couple sitting in front of him, a woman in a really cute yellow dress, and they had the paper out and they were everybody was talking about it. And she agreed. She's like, now that I think about it, she is a bit priggish. <laughs> Which he purses his lips. That's all he does. Because, you know, one is in public and that is a lady. He doesn't say anything. So there are a lot of reporters. They are waiting outside of an office for something. And they're mostly men. There's only a couple women that were in the group. I couldn't help but notice that. You can tell that his mission is anger driven because he is just kind of pushing his way through this throng of reporters, you know, all these cameras out. And he's just wants to get up towards the front of this group. And the police do not give him a second look, do they? He's got a respectable suit. He's got medals. They don't even glance at him with their full eyes. Do you know what I mean? They don't, no, mm -hmm. he, he requires no notice. And he really does move through that crowd in a way that I have only seen at rock concerts. Like he pushes people out of the way in a very authoritative and polite. Like he grasps them by the shoulders and simply moves them out of the way. That's right. Well, he was military, right? All throughout this episode, I kept seeing things that were like we look back at them and they're kind of old fashioned, but they were newish for the time. Like the group he belongs to. It was a kind of a newish group. They're outside the ITV, the independent television news station. And this is also really new because it wasn't even formed until 1954. So just a few years 
before our time now in 1957. Before that, the BBC had ruled the airwaves and they had kind of a monopoly, but they opened it up that independent producers could also have television stations, but they just didn't want it to appear like American television where everything was just hawking wares. You know, you thought you were watching an entertainment program and it looked like a commercial. So they had this independent television authority that kind of monitored um, the content. But the BBC no longer ruled the airwaves. See, and you know what? That goes along with this theme. Old institutions are having to make way for new ideas. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what this whole thing is all about. So the policemen just say, please, gentlemen, don't push. And right when they say that, look behind our hero, mystery man, The guy right behind him puts on his headphones as if, you know, welcome to the ITV podcast, you know, (laughs) right behind him. So a man comes out and he has a smile on his face. He looks really content. And our mystery man walks up and says, Lord Altrincham. And he says, yes, like he's going to answer some questions from the press. And our mystery man punches him in the face. With all the, you know, all the energy that he could muster. At least there's no teeth falling out onto the street, I guess. I know he put his whole force behind it, but it's not that hard of a punch. (laughs) I don't think so. You traitor. He's like at Altrincham, who's, you know, holding his face at this point. And I will tell you, he spit (laughs) on his uh, shoe also. That's right. He did. Yeah. yeah. And ooh, we are the photographers so excited. Like, snap, snap, it's payday for me. They're so excited. <laughs> and they actually have a giant crisis because when the police take this man away, they're actually torn what to do. Like, do I follow the assailant or stay with my original assignment, which was Lord Altingham? Like, they don't know what to do and they fully split in half. So we move on to another set of mystery men and they are setting a clock. It's a very finicky operation. And it's kind of nothing more than a little um, something. Sometimes directors will put a little like a visual break in between scenes, just, you know, a little pause, a little novelty for your eyes and your mind. So um, that's pretty cool. So right now we don't know who they are or what the deal is or anything. But we move in to Edine talking to someone on the phone and he says he'll let the queen know something. He doesn't seem as bummed out as he has been the past couple of episodes about having to deliver some news. This is a funny line. I'm sure the actor had so much fun. He's like, really? really really like oh my gosh this is some juicy stuff you know i will make sure i tell this to her majesty and he races out of the room and says hello to the men who were just setting the clock that's their job is to go around and set all these clocks okay so when i'll go ahead and talk about these guys now since we actually hear him call him mr conservator that is literally a position at buckingham palace that job was open as recently as 2013, by the way. You missed it. There are over a thousand clocks and instruments, barometers, thermometers, all kind of ometers. Um, they all have to be maintained and they all have to be repaired. Not only in Buckingham Palace, which I did the math <laughs> before <laughs> I just like simply looked up this, guys. I did the math. There's like 775 rooms in Buckingham Palace, right? So if you mm-hmm. take out the staff rooms and bathrooms, you're left with 508 rooms that might have clocks in them. And then you have rooms like the one that they were in, which was a huge opulent room that had several clocks in it. It's called an 
orological conservator and he also has an assistant and he has to not only know the mechanics of all those instruments he has to know the history of them all because he or she according to this job description that was posted um, has to fabricate historically accurate parts for clocks and things when they break it's a giant big deal and it's about fifty thousand a year and i assume you know you get lunch there in the servants hall or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how it goes anymore. But um, so it's a big job. And it reminded me a lot of back in Blenheim Palace in Consuelo Vanderbilt's time. There's literally one man whose whole job, this is his whole job for the whole year is washing only the outside of every window. It took him so long to wash these windows that by the time he got back around to the front, it was time to just simply go around again. And it took him a year. And so that's what this clock guy reminds me of. (laughs) He sets all the clocks by his pocket watch. How does he know his pocket watch is right? (laughs) Like we would just do it by our computers or our cell phones because they're all the same time. You know, I'm interested in looking that up because now it's like the atomic clock somewhere. But where was it then? Where is the authorite clock? I Mm -hmm. guess Greenwich Mean Time. That's something in Greenwich because why would they have Greenwich Mean Time, right? Something in Greenwich. You got me. All I know is that it was 352 when he set the clocks. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) All right. Well, out of that rabbit hole and back to the story at hand, Aideen comes in and lets the queen and the queen mom know Here's how he puts it. Lord Altrigham has been struck. <laughs> Dumb, I hope, says the Queen Mom. And Adine says, better than that, in the face. <laughs> and this just perks the ladies up. They had been sitting on this sofa just in silence. They both had glasses of pink. <laughs> there was no expression on their face at all. They weren't talking. They weren't watching television, which they seemed to like to do together. They were just sitting there and they were angry when he came in. They're like, what is it now? Oh, my gosh, something else bad has happened. And fortunately for Adine, he thinks he's bringing some really welcome news. Well, they're sort of, (laughs) they can't believe it. And they're kind of secretly delighted. They don't want to be so ha ha like you and I might be, but they are delighted (laughs) nonetheless. And then Queen Elizabeth simply says, by whom? Which gallant and chivalrous individual? (laughs) I love that. Now we know, we know now it's Philip Kinghorn Burbage. He was a veteran of World War II. He had four medals and I actually went and got his records from the National Archives in the United Kingdom. So we can even tell you which medals. We'll put those. We'll actually put his record up on the show notes. But anyway, so he he is a decorated war veteran who ended up paying 20 shillings as a fine. He was taken in, but not taken into custody. You know, he wasn't put in jail. He was just fined 20 shillings. And he was quoted later as saying, I felt it was up to a decent Britain to show resentment after these articles. This was the best investment I'd ever made. No regrets, basically. Not at all. And I don't have it in front of me, but he did say something like, I just did what Philip couldn't do. Oh, there you go. (laughs) See, he's defending her honor. It's like a duel. Yeah. It is like a duel, which is an old thing. (laughs) So they're super tickled by the punch. And then wait, there's a little mention of something. He mentioned that he was coming out of a TV studio. Oh, and Elizabeth picks up on that. And Michael Aideen's like, oh, crap. I forgot this inevitable bad part. Mm. Altrincham had been at the ITV studios to record an interview on the show Impact. Yes, and the interview was to air this very evening at nine o'clock. So unfortunately, his news of the attack on her um, persecutor was not completely happy. He had to deliver the news that, oh, also he's going multimedia. Bummer. 
I forgot about that part when I came in here all happy. But okay. So we do see many, 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 many clocks striking nine. (laughs) I hope they really aren't that loud in real life or horrifying. I hope it was just like an effect for the show. So there's a lot of different people watching this TV show impact with Robin Day, although it does begin with the Queen Mom and Elizabeth coming into the room to watch the TV where it does not look like nine o'clock p.m. I don't know what month this is, but there's no time of year that it's full bright at 9 p.m. No, only in Bunky Camp Palace because remember that the second episode, I think it was, when the kids were being told to go to bed and it was still bright outside. Hmm. Same thing. So they must have a separate, you know, sun clock. The sun doesn't dare go down until Elizabeth tells it to. That's right. (laughs) Very good. Okay. So we're watching the show, Impact, with Robin Day. And here's how it goes. Robin Day, I'm assuming. (laughs) I don't know who this is. Uh, Tell the people. Tell them on television. Questions in the public mind answered by people in the public eye. I thought that was really clever. Mm-hmm. We examine the most important matters of the day and bring the debate to your home. So that is the premise of this show. So we see the Queen Mom and Queen Elizabeth, of course. We see Michael Aideen. We see Charteris and Mrs. Charteris. What's her name? Mary. Ooh, where did that come from? Um, we see Lassels and his giant gray dogs, which seems to be a theme in this episode. Lassels and his giant gray dogs. I think they're Irish wolfhounds. I was reading this article. This is cracking me up. And I have no idea if this is the Mr. Lassels in question, but this is in an Irish wolfhound breeder journal. A Mr. Lassels had a prime example of the breed that he refused to breed because no possible male dog was a match for his perfect female Irish wolfhound, which seems very in character. So I'm assuming it's him. Yeah. No, that totally sounds like something he would do. And, you know, they're very majestic looking, I thought. I loved that uh, the Queen Mom and Queen Elizabeth come into the room and already the Queen Mom has her glass of pink. Because you had said that earlier, you're like, look for her. She's always got a glass and she sure does. <laughs> I think it is a literally a glass of gin with enough red wine in it to give it color. I literally think that's where she is right now. This is drink seven or eight of the day. <laughs> well, she was drinking back earlier in the morning at or the afternoon at 3.52, so... It is a constant background drinking situation. We've talked about (laughs) it before. So the host, Robin Day, introduces Lord Altrincham. So that's the man that got punched. And he introduces him by saying, in the space of just a few days, his inflammatory and deeply personal attacks on the Queen, you know, blah, 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 require no introduction. Oh, it's really not good. The Queen mom looks at her daughter very sadly. Golly. I mean, you know, your child is being attacked on national TV in all the press. And there's literally nothing as far as, you know, anyone in the palace is concerned that they can do to strike back. It kind Mm-mm. of reminds me of when Marie Antoinette kept getting attacked by all these false libels, but you can't kind of lower yourself to answer things. You, mm-hmm. you have to just preserve your dignity and hope it blows over, I guess. As far as Buckingham Palace is concerned, that's what one does. You hunker down and you let it pass. Yeah, I think that's probably their strategy, or at least it always has been. And now there's a face to it, though. I mean, this has been in the paper for a few days now, and it's caused quite a stir throughout the country, and it's caused a constitutional crisis. That's how bad this is. So we'll see the whole interview later, but the last crucial words of the interview are, why do you hate her so very much? And we zoom in to a trembling, I assume with rage, Queen Elizabeth. It just gets closer and closer to her face, and then... 
we fade to the opening, which is like every other opening, and there's nothing to say about it. <laughs> the only difference is um, this episode and the next one are directed by a woman named Philippa Lothorpe, who directed the other Boleyn girl, but upon reflection, it was not the one with Natalie Portman. It was the British version. Um, and also some episodes of Call the Midwife, another show that I highly recommend if um, medical and emotional stuff doesn't bum you out. I have binged through it. It's lovely. So we see a card. One month earlier, it says, people are exiting the underground and just, you know, grabbing papers on their way to work. And it seems very routine. I, it kind of made me wonder, how long has the underground been around? Is that another new thing for this time? You know, going with that theme for the show. But no, it had started in 1863. And yes, it got electrified in 1902, still, that era. It had just been taken over and nationalized in 1948. So that's kind of newish, you know, ownership and control, but I don't I don't think I'm not going to buy it as one of the new things in the show. So one cheerful guy walking along doesn't buy any papers because it turns out he is a paper. Well, not a major one, I guess, but the National and English Review which the poor old salesman is trying desperately to sell for two shillings there at the bottom of the stairs and everyone else has brisk business but not him. All the <laughs> other papers are like, yep, yep, and he's just like, come on, please, you know. <laughs> <laughs> take it, take it. Alteringham, we've already seen him because he was on the television show. He is walking with such a bounce in his step. He is a happy guy. He just flies up those stairs into his office and, you know, like, oh, he's going to work. Yes, he loves his job. I'd love <laughs> to see that. And it's so conveniently located. That's got to be a selling point for that office. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, okay, it's a staff meeting of some kind, although not a very strict one because people keep late coming and side chatting and leaning back and, and there's refreshments. <laughs> There is. It's kind of a kooky office setting, I think, is how I looked at it, because there's all these different characters, kind of. You just get the essence of the character because you don't really get to know them very well. And they're sitting around. It's kind of like an office episode, you know, The Office. Yeah, there's all this side stuff going on in addition to work. But Alteringham is trying to lead the meeting, and he's trying to get somebody to write a story about how allowing female priests is the only way to save the Church of England. And he wants somebody to write the story about it. And meanwhile, what? everyone else is talking about toffee and Patricia makes the best toffee. What is that? Molasses? So they're having this whole other conversation and it's sort of a radical paper just based on the topics that this Lord Altrium is trying to get everyone mm -hmm. to either write about or have an opinion on. So not only the women priests, he talks about removal of doctrinal tests, this whole thing about taking the Bible literally versus using it as an allegory for modern life, I guess, is a giant philosophical break in the church right about now. So he's taking, most likely, whichever version was more controversial. I'm not getting into that. But he does mention, quote, the irrelevance of the Church of England. He also wants somebody to write a story about reforming the House of Lords. I mean, these are like big topics. He wants an opinion. Are we for or against the single European market? And everybody's like, molasses. I love this toffee. <laughs> no one is really buying his fire. There's no fire. Everyone's very like, yeah, whatever. All this crazy stuff just washes over us every day. It's not new. And they're trying to get Alteringham to have a piece of the toffee. And you can tell he's awkward with Patricia. And she's just, just have a piece, you know. And he said, no, I had a really traumatic childhood dental horror story he gives about it and he's like oh okay and he takes a piece and he bites into it and his face just stops he's like oh again the same thing happened 
So he should not have taken that toffee. <laughs> is toffee what's in the inside of a Heath bar or like peanut brittle? I guess I don't know what toffee is if you can break your teeth on it. Is it like a Werther's original? I, it, um, I thought, yes. I think in my head, I think of it as like a Werther's original, but it looked like peanut brittle. Like, Can you it break like, your teeth on peanut brittle? Seems weird. Sure. It's a hot. Well, you. Boil the sugar and water into a, a hard ball stage. So it would be like breaking your tooth on a lollipop. I guess maybe I make different peanut brittle because I put baking soda in right at the end. And so mm-hmm. it's very, um, how shall I say, fluffy, crunchy. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, there's not, lots of air holes. You could not break your teeth on it. I don't know. I was just a little bit like, what? what's Patricia making here? Maybe it stuck his teeth together and he pulled out a filling. Oh, got it. Well, the side note is that the secretary by the window has an epic outfit on. So you should freeze frame on her. It is a uh, like a form-fitting jersey dress with a plaid. No one ever talks to her about her. Nobody <laughs> even looks at her except me because she has a really cool dress on. Yeah, she must have been taking notes. She was a note taker. Although taking notes on what? Because you know what? Lord Altrigam is super forgiving of everyone's vagueness and non-participation. He doesn't even care. He like genuinely kind of isn't even frustrated. No, he's probably used to it. And maybe that's conducive to the point of view of this paper, or it's actually a magazine, but, um, you know, it's like, we're going to run this differently because we're going to think differently. So we're not going to run this in a strict business, you know, New York Times manner. We're going to have a laid back dialogue and that's, you know, maybe that's just the tone of their office, whatever. Well, and I'm also thinking I'm kind of that sort of boss, too, because what you want to do is you want to talk it out. And maybe they're just mm-hmm. like, oh, no, this is the talking out phase. We can totally like faff off right now because this is the stage where he talks out loud until he organizes his thoughts and then we'll participate in the second part. We can move to a different sort of staff meeting, a more strict staff meeting. Adine in his office, five um, men in chairs in a line, um, and he is reading out a speech that the queen is supposed to deliver. They're all just head down taking notes. He's doing some editing on it. You know, he's changing some words here and there. So it's clearly a speech that he's written. And these guys are just, I don't know. I don't even know why they're there. I don't know their jobs. They're in suits. They're not in uniforms. Part of this speech is four out of the five guys in the room are just writing. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Your ability to withstand dull, repetitive work. That's cringy, cringy. And meanwhile, the camera is cruising past pictures of people at Eaton, military unit pictures, a picture of a man with epic sideburns. And I'm wondering if it could be, and I hope it is, his grandpa, who was the private secretary to Queen Victoria. Whoa. This runs in the family. So no wonder he sticks in this position. I kept wondering this whole time, like, how did that guy get in here if he's kind of not very confident and he's no lassels or whatever? It's like, well, you have the credentials. I mean, really? Mm -hmm. So kind of that actually illuminated my mind a little about him when I realized his family connection to this position. He's in that position just because he'd been there the longest. Had nothing to do with, you know, what he brought to the table. It had to do with his seniority. Yeah. So also... The upward course of a nation's history is due to the soundness of heart in its average men and women. And that's when somebody finally speaks up. And it's this the youngest guy in the group. And he's like, average men and women. Can we change that to working men and women? It adds a little bit more dignity. And the dean disagrees. He has a how dare he look on his face. And I thought, this guy must be somebody's son or there was going to be more words. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. he manages to give him the look, but he doesn't say anything. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I don't know whose son this is because in the credits, he's listed as assistant press secretary in the credits. I, I don't know. Maybe he got the job like Adine did just because. Because he, he went was... to Eaton, most likely. <laughs> yeah. I always wonder when Adine gives looks like that, if in his head, he feels like he's looking like lassels. Yeah, he doesn't pull that off. He kind of no. looks dyspeptic, like he's got a fart is what he looks like i'm so sorry so the assistant press secretary our our youngest staff member in the very conservative staff meeting is running the copy upstairs to warn charteris he knows who to pass it up to he just wants charteris's eyes on it he wants his opinion on it i'm gonna guess obviously not with a dean's blessing because he just tore off from the office and ran upstairs. The young guy says he's uneasy about the speech that the queen is going to give next week. Charteris's office, it looks like a bonus room conversion. You know, it's really small. There's kind of a slanted ceiling. It's clearly in the attic. It's just like tucked away. It's like, oh, Charteris needs an office. Here's one. <laughs> that stunned me. It's like in the West Wing, they they hired their first Republican in the West Wing administration and they didn't have an office. And so they made one out of a maintenance room called the Steam Trunk Distribution Transfer Room or something. And it's full <laughs> of um, all the pipes and it's really hot in there. <laughs> so it's like, oh, Charteris needs a Steam Trunk Distribution Room. And so they just like stuck him in a box room, kind of. But he's pretty laid back. I mean, the man was in real life. He was not a lassels at all. But one thing he is, is with and for Elizabeth. Because, as you recall, Charteris was her private secretary when she was, quote, only Princess Elizabeth. So they were sorry to see each other go. Rank improvement meant, I'm sorry, upgrade on the civil list there. We have to go to a different guy. But they really had a good working relationship together. So he's for her. He's on her side. Yeah. He's reading this paper. His face is like, oh, no. And he hauls off. So it's one of those um, relay race kind of things. The young guy came to him and now he's going to somebody else. So Charteris busts into Aideen's office to object to the text of this speech, but he encounters Lassels, the machine. (laughs) He is retired. What is he doing there? Well, you can tell he's retired because he brought his two dogs in. And that's the first thing Charteris sees is he's talking to Aideen and he looks down and those two Irish wolfhounds are just looking up at him. And he looks around the corner of the door and there's Lassels just... What, shooting the sh- stuff with <laughs> with the deed? I don't know. Why was he there? He's actually become uh, an extra equerry now. He doesn't have an official rank, but he actually has full access. And um, he didn't even retire until 1981 again. So he's back. He's like back in the orbit with no official, like he's a roving um, uh, consultant now. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Because I'm like, why is he there? And he's in a suit. Okay. If he's there in an official capacity why does he have his dogs then because he's not he it's hard to explain he doesn't have an official title he just has kind of unlimited access he's like an extra guy okay who is just kind a of floater yeah a floater but like the hammer <laughs> the floating hammer Ooh, yeah i like that imagery <laughs> so i like how he looked over at the young man who's like uh but he now that he sees the big cheese there and Lassels just says very calmly, hmm, you are about to interfere beyond your station. Like, oh, crap, says Charteris. Ah. 
And so he simply, rather than the rant he had obviously been prepared to deliver, I mean, because we could run Aideen, right? He simply says, are you happy with that speech? <laughs> and Aideen is like, I mean, his eyes keep darting to Lassels, like he wants his approval so much. And he says, yes, he's happy with it. And the queen has already approved it. She approved it immediately. And Charteris is like, well, did she read it? And Adin was just waiting for him to ask this. And he's like, no, she trusted my opinion and signed off on it. So she's signed off on it without reading it based on Adin's advice. Oh, my goodness. And so he says, so obviously... I'm happy with it. But here's the real problem. Is it good enough for Colonel Charteris? He's being sarcastic. I don't know. Whatever. I'm kind of disappointed in him. But anyway, Charteris calls this the speech paternalistic. He also says, mm, in this new Britain, it seems a little old fashioned. And Lassels deigns to read it. He just skims through it and he agrees with a dean. He gives Charteris this long list of reasons. You know, the people love the queen. They're going to accept her as a fixture, like the sky. The monarchy has no power to change anything, so there's nothing to attack. He's got an answer for everything based on his experiences. Well, and Adine just loves this. He's like a little kid on the playground yelling like, yeah, take him down, Tommy. But he keeps it on side. <laughs> well, I think that's why he was being so uh, snappy to Charteris is because Lassels was right there in the room with him, kind of empowering him, you know, enabling him, giving him a little of his sassy strength, I guess. You know, there's power in numbers kind of thing. So far, the theme of this episode is how dare you question your superior because we have had three incidences of this and it's like minute seven. <laughs> he has another point that he thinks seals the deal. Talking about the people and how much they love their sovereign and blah, blah, blah. They're not radicals. They won't do anything. He says, it's a long way from apathy to insurrection, I'd say. And you know what? It's a long, you know, distance, maybe. But it gets traveled with great speed whenever the people decide to take that road. I mean, have you not studied the French Revolution? I don't know. <laughs> but to quote from The Hunger Games, my friend, fire is catching. So you need to be a little less smug about, quote, the common people. I guess I got a little bit shirty with him there. Like, oh, they're just little sheep. They're just going to walk around, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yes, they are until they suddenly aren't. He is operating in this pre-Suez world. So he has got a thing coming, I think. I think the world has changed on him um, a little bit more than he thinks. That whole transactional nature of like, if the newspapers make us mad, we'll just exclude them from the next event. It doesn't work that way anymore, my friend. No, and Charteris knows that because he's telling them that since the Suez crisis, it's a new Britain and that the monarchy really needs to fit in. Charteris sees this, but these guys are stuck in the old Britain and it's how we've always done things. So why should we change kind of attitude with a little take that whippersnapper, get off my lawn thrown in for good measure. I know. So Queen Elizabeth is getting her hair washed and cut, and her hairdresser advises a shorter hairdo. Shorter and more rounded. Fine, that's good. So she can't go out to a stylist, obviously. Uh, even now, she has a guy come two times a week to shampoo and set her hair. I love how they went from um, into this scene, because it's just, you know, the guys are in this office, and then suddenly we're with Queen Elizabeth and she's in profile and there's a bright light behind her and this soft towel comes up to her face. You know, all the steps, it's just, there's traditional steps that are taken to get your hair done. And we see them all as the queen experiences and these really pretty close-ups. I, I liked how they shot this scene. 
so he's cutting and he's spraying and he's curling and he's doing all the things. And I have to tell you that I clapped my hands when we get to the reveal of the new hairdo. It is coronation level music at our first sighting of that iconic still existing hairdo. It is like, ha, 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 here's where it came from. Amen. It is like so hilarious. Actually, um, the music that was playing was Handel Zadok the Priest, and it's coronation music. It was composed for King George II, and it's been used ever since. So like you just said, yes, that's her crown, right? Her hairdo. So if you want to blast that in your car, rock on. We'll give you a link. <laughs> Actually, it was a really good song, I thought. You know, the music, I liked it. It was especially for this scene. Although I do have to point out that once again, here she is taking somebody else's advice for a decision that she should have been making. Well, but she loves it. She looks in the mirror and she says, I like it very much. I saw the first look on her face, though, was kind of shock, I thought. It's like, you know how when you get a hairdo and you finally look at it and they spin you around, there's just a second where you're like, oh, that isn't the face that sat down in this chair. Not my department. Oh, yes. Well, I will tell you, that's how it works for me. (laughs) Yeah. On the train, Philip hates his wife's new hairdo. I mean, a lot. So Philip is just staring at her, staring, just, huh, can't even read his paper. And he opens with this comment. I thought you wanted more children. And she's like, I do. And he goes, why would you do something like that to your hair then? Oh, my God. (laughs) He hasn't learned this lesson yet. They've been married for quite a while. (laughs) Yeah, he can't stand it. Now, personally, I don't like her hat. It looks like brains. But Mm. am I going to tell her that? No, I'm not. (laughs) She loves it. She thinks that it's tidy and sensible. And he says adjectives to stir the loins. He keeps pressing this. You know, you're not turning me on with that hair thing. I love the following comment. Should you ever decide to ride a motorcycle, it could always double as a helmet. And he cracks himself up. And he says, it'll also provide ample protection against falling masonry. He's just laughing, laughing. And on the one hand, stop. You know, we get it. You hate it. You think it looks like a helmet. And I really hate to see I mean, she felt cute earlier. She was very happy. She had a very, like, I'm so excited about my hairdo. And now she's looking at herself unhappily in the reflection of the window. And that's not good feeling. I don't know. No. And he keeps pressing it. He says her goal is procreation. She should look at Jane Mansfield or Rita Hayworth. (laughs) Ha-cha-cha. Like Rita Hayworth. Like he wants sexy, I guess. And really? I don't know. Okay. Elizabeth met... Marilyn Monroe just the year before. It was when she was married to Arthur Miller. I'll put the video on the website. Um, But Marilyn Monroe's hair didn't look a whole lot different than Elizabeth did. And don't tell me Marilyn Monroe isn't sexy. I don't know. Maybe he wanted longer hair, I guess. If those are his two ideals, he wanted longer. Oh, definitely. Definitely. But I'm saying that her hair could be sexy if he would just you know, open his eyes to it, I guess. Well, and also if he really had input, you know what? Before is a better time. It's too late now. And now she's ready. She's going to an event and you choose right before an event to tell her she looks ugly. I don't know. I just think that the timing was bad. I mean, you know, you can always catch the hairdresser. You know who he is, right? You can have a footman pass him a note like, hey, or a picture of Jane Mansfield, if it's that important to you. (laughs) You know, true. Yeah. Well, maybe he had her ear and he was bored. Mm. 
I don't know. But you know what? He's known for social gaffes, Philip is. He doesn't have a really good sense of like the correct time to say anything. So he's famous for that in real life. So maybe that's just an explanation of that or an illustration of that. And like you said, she does keep this basically the same hairstyle for the rest of her life. There was a little period in the late 60s and early 70s where she it went a little bit longer. But essentially, it's this same hairdo. So she got her final word in It's like, ah, you don't like it too bad. We see a whole bunch of people tidying like crazy at the Jaguar factory, the Jaguar factory. Elizabeth is coming for a visit. It's a beautiful close up of someone polishing the hood insignia on a Jaguar. And then there's a whole bunch of someone's. You just see them from the knee down sweeping and washing floors, you know, men and women brushing off a red carpet. I mean, <laughs> Okay, that's pretty obvious, right? But they're all really busy to get it clean. Where do you get the red carpet? Does the palace send it over? I actually am interested to know. I, I don't know. Maybe they had it for like auto shows. Oh, maybe. I, don't I just was like, huh, I don't have a red. Well, maybe I do have a red carpet. You know how my husband is with stuff in the basement. There's probably one down there. <laughs> I have two colors of velvet rope with stands, red or purple. Like My basement is like the cave of wonders in Aladdin. You never know what's going to be down there. So where do you get a red carpet? The Graham's basement. That's where. So she pulls up in a non-Jaguar car to the Jaguar factory. Kind of uncool. Like, do people wear other designers to your runway show? I actually don't know about that. Like, if you were going to go to Valentino, can you wear Chanel? Maybe it's not as bad as, you know, taking food from one restaurant into another restaurant, which I tell you what, will make my husband so mad he'll never speak to you again. Yeah, it's bad. No, that's just tacky. That's horrible. But even an outfit, you know, you have many of them, but you don't usually have a whole lot of cars. It's not like you can buy a car for a certain event. Maybe they let it slide. I don't know. I think it's a Rolls Royce. But anyway, so the executive level seems like is outside. There's a man in a wig who might be a barrister. It's not a big doctor's wig and it's not a big judge wig. And I guess a factory would have to have a um, legal team. So maybe that's who he is. I just thought, wow, he even rolled out his wig for the occasion. Yeah, there's like flags hanging it's not bunting, though. It's like, you know, a whole bunch of flags on a string hanging all over the place. It looks so festive. And the queen gets out and she's introduced to the people that are waiting. The first up was Sir William Lyons. He was one of the first two men to open Swallow Sidecar Company, which then became Jaguar after World War II. So he's like one of the big guys. She meets him first. And there's lots of handshaking and curtsying. And Philip is, you know, his two steps behind her. Just, hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? And they go in and the tour is just painful to watch and probably to experience. The first thing she says when she walks into this building is, she's, you can see her eyes look around and she doesn't know what to say because she's like, um... It's very um, spacious. It is very spacious, but it's a production facility. So it's small talk, small talk. She meets a guy. Oh, you studied drawing, did you? Lovely. They get to that MK1, which epic car. I'm telling you what. Uh, Philip does want a test drive in the MK1, but they are not going to give it to him. It goes 100 miles an hour. See, that's something he can get behind uh, <laughs> at last. But otherwise, so awkward. There's bowing of heads. There's curtsies. It's just like a receiving line. Ugh. I can't it's imagine it being comfortable for the queen or Philip or anybody that works there. No. And I'm going to point out that the MK1, the car that they showed, was new in 1955. So this is a new model of a car. You know, oh, maybe that's why they did it with the older car, with the older rolls pulling up. That's the old way. 
and that the MK1 is the new way. I don't know, but there's another new thing in an old society. I probably cannot afford either one, frankly. So oh, no, no. <laughs> Philip loved the car. He wanted to know if the leather was horse or cow. Did anyone even answer him? No, they didn't. And except for me, I'm like, they make horse leather. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's called Shell Cordovan, and it's in high end shoes. <laughs> but yeah, it's really painful. Just a lot of hellos and that fake smile on their face. So she does begin to give the speech, this famous speech that we've been hearing about all episode intercut with Lord Altrincham hearing it in public while he's waiting in the dentist's office to fix that broken tooth. It goes over like a lead balloon in both places, right in front of her in the factory and in the dentist's office. It is tone deaf and offensive. And now that you see people's reactions, you can really, really tell. The audience is all sitting very still. You know, they're all lined up in their chairs perfectly. And it's all very still. There's no animation in this room at all. You know what the first WTF sentence is in my mind? Mm -hmm. The following. Many of you are leading uneventful, lonely lives where dreariness is the enemy. Like, (laughs) what? As she goes on, and it's even worse. Perhaps you don't understand that your capacity for dull and repetitive work, a guy at the Jaguar factory in the front row crosses his arms and leans back like, I'm out of this deal. Even Philip is like, eyebrows? (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, just like the young press secretary said, just like Charteris knew, that line, average men and women, is like a punch in the face. The upward course of a nation's history is due, in the long run, to the soundness of heart and its average men and women. So our country is successful because you're average. You're supporting us. Thank you so much. And the dentist's office is like, what just happened? At least at the dentist's (laughs) office, they can turn the channel. Bag this. A guy turns to rock and roll and everyone's like relieved and cheerful. Even an older (laughs) guy who you would think would be more, you know, respectful of the monarchy just by his age cracks up like, woo, that was disrespectful and awesome that you just turned that off. Yeah. Even the older generation is not down with this. And um, the song that was on was called Let's Have a Wonderful Time. You know, they were getting this talking down by the queen. And it's like, oh, forget that. Let's have a wonderful time. <laughs> yeah, no such luxury at the Jaguar factory. They have to kind of not lose the jobs, etc. But I imagine that the exit was more awkward than the entrance. I do think it would have helped in this speech if Philip had seen it. I like heard her practicing or whatever. Like that's not his job, but he could have certainly given his feedback. We've seen how he feels free to weigh in on, you know, unsexy bucket hair, etc. But I have a question for you. Do you think it would have made a bit of difference if the queen had seen it ahead of time? Like, I'm not sure it would have. No, I don't either. Because the mentality was exactly the monarchy's mentality. It's like it's never changed. You know, we're in the station above you and everybody down there is just worker people supporting us. I mean, they're believed that they're put there by God. So that gives them a certain sense of privilege for sure. And the lower classes are just there to support them. So no, I don't think it would have changed her. Maybe she would have changed a word, not the whole tone of the speech. And that was the problem. It wasn't just that one line. It was the whole speech. It's like, 
you have these really boring humdrum lives. Your life sucks, but shit up, Buttercup. It's for the greater good. That was kind of what the message was. And no, I don't. I don't think it would have changed anything. Which was kind of the sentiment during the war. Like, let's all pull together. You know. But during the war, they were kind of all on equal footing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what yeah. I'm just saying. Like everybody yeah. was a cog in the machine. Everybody was. Oh, don't worry. Your job in the quote aircraft factory might be dull, but you're saving our boys. You know. And in that mm-hmm. context, I could see how that would really work. Like push through. Let's persevere as a people. But now it sounds like you'll stay there in your sad situation forever. Not even a thank you. Mm-mm. <laughs> no, because like I said, they're privileged. They wear it proudly. So Lord Altrincham cruises out of the dentist's office and runs back to his office with a bee in his bonnet. After the speech he just heard on the radio, he wants to write an article, but he is a little defeated because there's no one there but Patricia and he wants some typing done. And she's ready to go home. But she's like, no, there's no place I need to be. And they're kind of cute smiling with each other. There's kind of this flirty vibe going on. No, I'll just help you out. And he gets coy almost. I think that's love. I think so, too. It is not your basic uh, employer-employee relationship. This whole thing, though, where he walks in and is just devastated that there's no... I guess, assume ladies there. It reminds me of Pleasantville. If you remember that movie, it's set in the 50s and the man is actually a TV character, like from Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best or one of those things. He comes in and he has no idea how to run a stove or dinner because that's what ladies do. And this seems like exactly the same kind of thing. Like he, he looks sadly at the typewriter like, oh no, if only there was a lady to run the typewriter. How do I turn it on? (laughs) It's kind of sad. But luckily, luckily, a lady is there to save him. The actress who plays Patricia, her name is Gemma Whelan, and she's in Game of Thrones. I don't watch it, so I may mispronounce this. She's Yara Greyjoy. I don't know. Game of Thrones people are probably going, yeah, that's where I saw her. Totally different character. That's for sure. I have completely determined that I am not watching Game of Thrones until I've read the books first. And as I cannot get through the first book, I don't foresee watching Game of Thrones. But I've got all the audiobooks on hold. So I'm hoping for a little push through that way. That's my typical scenario. If And it's very rare that I can't get through a book. But you know what? Doesn't mean it's bad. I'm also the same way with The Hobbit. I have never been able to get through any of those books. That's funny. You were just saying that. I'm like, okay, that's me with The Hobbit. I couldn't get through it. <laughs> so it's just a matter of, I think there's just too many characters and too much, What? how am I going to even say it? Like societal backstory, you kind of have to be expected to know before you're in. So I think maybe listening to the audiobook and then going back and reading the books would be a better plan. So that's what I'm going to do with that. So I will see her. I'll see Ms. Greyjoy. Uh, <laughs> you know, later. So um, she is typing and we see the words, has the monarchy lost its magic? So there's the theme of what we're typing. And he is, you know, hauling in books and talking to her. He says, I was inspired by Walter Badgett. The first duty of royalty being to inspire. (laughs) This cracked me up because there's this really happy music playing and she's just typing away and she's finishing her document and he comes in and he's like, I've had this great idea. So like scrap everything you just did. We're going to start fresh. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just smiling. She's like, okay, maybe she's excited and caught up in the excitement of journalism and, you know, rewriting and all that. I'm just going to go with that. I think she really admires him. And I'm, you know, it just seems like, and I don't know too much about Patricia in uh, real life, except for 
you know, one major fact I'll tell you in a minute, but um, she seems like she really admires his mind, like the way it works. Like she doesn't understand it necessarily, but like I'm down for whatever. It's like me in Chris's kitchen, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll chop stuff. I don't know. You're the artist, but I'll, I'll get stuff ready <laughs> and watch you. So that's kind of, you know, it's love. It's nice. I think it's good. Supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Walter Badgett is a writer from 1865 when he published perhaps one of his two most popular works, The English Constitution. We actually have seen this before in The Crown, back when Elizabeth was getting tutored at the boys' school. Uh, on the English Constitution, her tutor was talking about how there are two branches in the British government, the dignified and the practical, right? According to that philosophy, she is the dignified, her branch. But her job is to be the shiny thing that wins the citizen's loyalty by putting on a show, which is kind of sick, really. And then the, quote, practical branch of government can come in and use that loyalty to further their own ends. Okay. And I'm just kind of wondering, I don't know if he took it out of context or what, but he can't love him completely, though, because this guy literally warns against letting daylight in upon magic. Like, don't look at that parliament behind that curtain. Hmm. Bread and circuses, bread and circuses. Like, the curtain is the circus. (laughs) That's right. So he's pulling back the curtain, and I'm not sure his hero would have approved of that. No, maybe not. I thought he was like um, kind of a radical for his time, like an intellectual radical, and that John would look up to him. John, I'm calling him John. Oh, Altrincham. But no? Well, I don't know. Plenty of people look up to him. I mean, Ben Bernanke um, used his economic work even as recently, you know, as his service in our government, you know. So he and his philosophies are admired by many men in power and utilized by men in power. I just think it is very curious that one of the fundamental things is like, keep the things separate and don't destroy the magic. And yet here he is like writing an article. In fact, Badgett didn't really think the common people should even have a vote really, which is sort of at odds with a guy like Lord Altrincham who gets rid of his title so he can stand for an election. So more (laughs) study needed on Walter Badgett's The English Constitution. So they did it at Project Gutenberg. We'll put up the full text and you can kind of look through it yourself and see if I'm off base. Okay. I think he was cherry picking parts that he liked is what I'm saying, I guess. So maybe it was like a line that he remembered and he just looked it up really fast out of context. That happens a lot. I don't claim to be a Walter Badgett scholar. That's just kind of what stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. Well, his face while he's doing this, it looks all they do a close up of his face and he realizes that he's come up with this unique view and he thinks it's just a beautiful plan. He's focusing on the queen too. That one of the lines we do see, it says the queen appears to be unable to string even a few sentences together without written text. So it's like, she's not even thinking for herself is what he's saying. If we're going to pull back the curtain, we might as well see something we like behind it. Well, maybe. and Patricia literally quails at that sentence. This is a personal attack kind of. He calls it a defect that is particularly regrettable. And Patricia's like, I don't know. I think he literally forgets Queen Elizabeth as a human person. I literally think he does. Like he is like the first anonymous commenter on a blog or podcast (laughs) that forgets that the people they're criticizing are human people that have feelings. And I don't think he's malicious about it, but I think in his zeal for improvement, you know, maybe he's a little bit more like Lassels than I thought. He forgets <laughs> that people aren't machines and right. you can't just flip a switch. Um, oh, no, this is the solution. Just do this. Check. That's not how people work. So good point. Excellent point. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens after that article appears. And now a brief intermission. 
we are back. We see more train, 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 and then a car. And Philip and Elizabeth are still on their journey. Obviously, they're in Scotland because there is a whole bagpiper troop coming down the road. <laughs> they're making their way to greet her as she arrives. And I was going to try to let you in on all the secrets of the regalia. And it <laughs> turns out that is a freaking minefield. People are up in arms about the colors of feathers. I'm sorry heckles um i'm not going to get into that i'm not going to be drawn into the controversy <laughs> no. so we will just give you some links there are a couple <laughs> things i can tell you though without too much controversy so i'm going to stick to the part where i'm not going to get beat down by the internet <laughs> those big hats that the percussionists are wearing the drummers mm -hmm. i guess who am i to say percussionists but the child of two symphony musicians the drummers are wearing big hats called feather bonnets and Evidently, they have a macho protective hard hat situation underneath all those feathers. Hmm. Uh, they protect you very well in battle. And you'll notice the bass drummer wears a leopard skin. That's kind of cool. And I thought, what the heck? Evidently, it's an homage to his regiment's service in Africa. I think what you know is about more than anybody else knows that isn't in a in the bagpipe community, I guess. Well, everything else, honestly, I'm going to just give you some links because it's people argue. And if you look at the troop, there are different colors of feathers mm -hmm. on their feather bonnets and on their official hats. And I just don't even know. I hope they used a really, really reputable person in the costume department <laughs> because I can only imagine the email just from having surfed oh. the internet about that situation. So okay, there's people on one side, the populace, and the musicians on the other side, and she seems to be happiest to see the pipers. And they're on her side of the car, I guess. They probably knew that. Doesn't she always sit on that side of the car? That's her side. But she does that wave again, you know, her the queenly wave as she's driving by. And like in the first episode where the protesters were there with their signs and we wondered how they got there. This time, at least they knew she was coming. It's a planned stop. You know, she's going to spend some time at Balmoral. So that's why they were all running to see her. So Elizabeth is visiting Balmoral. It's her scheduled visit. She does it at this time every year. And so she gets out of the car and she's got a spring in her step that she frankly does not have at Buckingham Palace. I think she's happiest to be here. And she greets someone on her way in. So I would like for you to regard the greeting. Now, usually when she greets people, don't they like bow deeply or curtsy if they're a lady, but it is just a nod like you might give an acquaintance or a or a dear friend like, oh, hello, this is the 19th Earl of Caithness. He is the clan chief of Clan Sinclair. Um, his family, the earldom, goes back to 1455. Whoa. Um, he has a seriously old family. He has a seriously deeply respected bloodline. Okay, I'm just saying. Well, he, after his military service, was appointed the manager, the steward of Balmoral, um, just about three years before this happened. So talk about leaving something in some really good hands. But I just think it's interesting that he was a military man, so Philip likes him too. How shallow the bow of his head is, like it's almost like equals greeting each other. I was hung up on her shoes. <laughs> well, first off, it's really hard to walk on that gravel when you're wearing heels. But she was wearing white shoes and a purse. And if it's fall, I thought that was an old timey rule for us. They don't have Labor Day. So do they wear white shoes all year in England in 1957? I don't know. Maybe they weren't really white whites. Maybe they were uh, white. 
Maybe. Well, now that you mentioned it, and I was going to leave it be, given that it's a personal attack and everything, but like Claire Floyd really nailed this walk down. And I do not know where this walk came from. I know Philip wants sexy hair and sexy this and that, and that walk is just not going to do it. She like galumphs around. <laughs> the camera pulls up and we get this beautiful shot of supposedly Balmoral Castle. And I was wondering, is that CGI? Because it looked almost fake. But it seems they filmed it at our Veriki estate where you can go and stay. And they call it the most beautiful place in the world. How do you spell that? Well, you spell it um, A-R-D-V-E-R-I-K-I-E, our Veriki. Huh. I would like a jigsaw puzzle with this castle because I think it would be very, very challenging with all those different colors of gray. And so I'm glad to know it's not Balmoral because my search uh, can simply reflect the actual view. <laughs> so I might have a better chance at getting what I need. That'll be good. Oh, it's beautiful. And it actually looks an awful lot like Balmoral. It easily passes for Balmoral. So we next see Elizabeth in her element, as far as I'm concerned. She's going out deer stalking with only one servant. It's just her. Her and an extremely young man, and she gets a deer. She is so outdoorsy, and I agree. This is totally her element. She loves being there. You know how you are when you're in your happy place, and I think being outside and you know slogging through the mud is her happy place. And she's got a scarf on her head. She's got her Wellingtons on. She doesn't care where she's stepping. She has her binoculars so she can look ahead and see where the animals are. She's got a young guy who's got a telescope, this really cool, um, what's it called? I think it's a spotting scope, but I don't know. Oh, spotting scope. Oh. But you could say telescope in case I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever it is. And he looks through it and they spot some deer and they kind of creep up closer because they're hunting these deer. And the <laughs> when they first see the deer, they're all like having like a stag party because <laughs> they're men, male deer. Get it? It's a stag. Okay, if you have to explain oh, it, yeah. not that funny. Doing that thing they do when they're getting into mating season. They're like showing how macho they are. Oh, okay. Okay. That was like, Elizabeth and this guy, you're having a stag no, party? No, the I deer was... were having a stag party. So confused. <laughs> okay. So they, okay, so they stalk closer and they get down. They're in the dirt. I mean, they're right down in the mud. She's in there. They kind of army crawl and <laughs> the servant sets up the shot for her. He puts the gun down on the ground and lines it up with this particular deer that was foolish enough to get away from his friends and then she rolls over to take over and she's the one that shoots it and you see it right through that viewfinder and he's like good shot ma'am he really does do everything but pull the trigger doesn't he <laughs> but that's okay that's okay you know he's helping her out and she seems very happy and i remember that she said once to uncle david the king that was don't you think I would rather have been an ordinary country woman? That's why she asked Uncle David for an apology for throwing her into the queenship in the first place. Mm -hmm. And at first, <laughs> after she shot it, I'm like, now, how are you getting that home, girl? That weedy guy is not carrying that home for you. <laughs> and then, OK, you know, a horse and one more servant came. So that was good. Yeah, I love that parting shot. It's They're going down a road. It's from behind. Now the deer is on the back of the horse and they're all walking home with her haul. How did they know to get him? Like, how did that guy know that they can't, you know, pull out their cell phones and call him? He's probably just waiting on the road. Like, you know, oh. and I'm sure the guy just, hello, you know, there's nothing out there. You're going to hear for miles, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And the shot, <laughs> I had no idea how much an adult deer weighed. 
a lot. 150 to 300 pounds. That's why I was laughing about that teenage man is not going to put this on, <laughs> no. on his back. There's another view now of that exit to the underground. And this time, the vendor that sells the National and English Review is busy, busy, busy because it is flying off the shelves. It's Lord Altrincham's article that has been gripping the nation. And he comes bouncing again out of the underground stop, his stop, because it's right by his office. Altrincham is so excited to see all these papers. This is like exciting for him. This never happens. You can even hear everybody's coins clinking on that vendor's table. It is just a constant background sound. Everyone is buying this and they can't even wait. They're walking away reading, which is really bad for traffic patterns, but they're so excited to read this. And they're all in summer clothes because it is August of 1957, unlike the queen who's wearing, you know, a barn jacket. <laughs> I almost think it's the wind, though, on the moor or whatever is going to just get you. There's nothing to stop that wind just whipping. There's still snow on the top of the mountain caps. Yeah. Scotland does yes. not play. No. <laughs> now we have a quick montage that other newspapers have picked up the story, which they are framing as a personal attack on the Queen. And you know, headline writers just have so much fun. Attack on Queen and monarchy. Peer hacks a Queen. Nice. Peer sneer. Mm. <laughs> and he was a peer. He was a... um. A baron. His father was Baron Altrincham, and when he died, he inherited it. And so he was a member of the British nobility. He was the second Lord Altrincham. So Michael Aideen is getting notified about something on the phone. I think that's his ground state, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and it's not as happy this time. He suddenly looks out the window, hears a noise. Oh, it's the papers coming. The delivery van. Oh, crap. This time he looks really worried. You only hear him saying, I see and write. And, you know, he's got this major worry crease in his eyebrows. And he's like, well, thank you. Before he hangs up the phone and goes to the window and looks out and goes, oh, you know, oh, my gosh, I have to deal with this right now because <laughs> the papers are here. I think his first impulse was to block them from coming in the house. And I just don't think he could justify doing that. Although I do have to tell you, I would go down and steal that delivery van because I would like to drive that around town as my car. Oh, thank you. I put that. They're, they're getting papers from a guy in a cute blue truck. Yeah. It was adorable. So much. Well, anyway, so he kind of can't prevent it from happening, this catastrophe, but he's trying to formulate a plan. So, you know, the papers go on a tray, the tray goes to the breakfast room, and he follows it in. The queen and Philip are at breakfast. They're in front of this gorgeous, huge window with this amazing view of all the mountains. Like, this is going to work, but Adine tries anyway. He says, just to say, it might be worth avoiding certain newspapers this morning. So, <laughs> oh, really? Sure. We'll put them in the fire then. That's <laughs> okay. right. I don't think that works. And Philip's first reaction is, what's your sister done now? Just you wait, Philip. This is not that episode, but just you wait. Adine does say, well, it's an article written by Lord Altrincham. And Philip's like, I've never heard of him and neither has Elizabeth. Adine explains it was originally in his own publication, the National and English Review. And then again, they're like, we've never heard of it. And just the way he said it, it was like, you know, when you have to clear the hair out of the drain, <laughs> that disgusting feeling, it's how he just sneered it out of his mouth. And he goes on, he's like, well, the other papers ran it in full. It's, and then he pauses, quite, more pause, a critical article, ma'am. <laughs> okay. So she doesn't want to see it now? 
please. So the transition is that we see yet another paper with another headline. Lord snubs sovereign. In the text that we can see, he calls her priggish and tweedy. But it is not, in fact, the breakfast room with Philip. It is the queen mom and Elizabeth in a private room. The queen mom is very indignant on her daughter's behalf. She's the one reading the paper that we have just seen the headlines from. They're together again. And I, she had these really great glasses on. because I thought they were amazing. The Queen Mom's first response is one of indignation. What gives him the right? See, we go back to that theme. How dare you criticize your superior? And Elizabeth is kind of starting to melt to it a little bit because she says, tell me, Mommy, is there any part of that you agree with? Her first reaction, I think, like all of us humans to negative reviews is, oh, I guess I suck. Like, you can have 99 positive reviews and one bad one, and, you know, maybe there's something to this. You just harp on the negative review. Oh, you do. And if you don't get them a lot, um, they kind of stand out even more, I think. And that's probably what was happening to her. She's never really had anyone to give her constructive criticism before. So I don't think she knows what it looks like. The closest she ever got was Winston Churchill, who was so respectful, she probably hardly even recognized it as criticism. Mm -hmm. And she was new on the job then. I bet you those years were kind of a blur. Yeah. The queen mom does what tiger moms do. You, you know, you bolster your position that you're going to be behind your child. She said 85% of people disagree with him. It's only because it's a slow news day, she says. That's the only reason this was even in here. And she's like, probably tomorrow, after people have thought about it, it'll be 95% of people. She does give this great what did you say? Tiger mom sentence. It's an irrelevant article written by an irrelevant man in an irrelevant publication. And then she cool. ends with Papal. That man's going to wish he'd never been born. In real life, this was not the first time that Altrincham had articles like this about her. It's just the first time that they were seen. We saw him at his meeting with his people. That's his thing. He comes up with these kind of radical ideas and he wants to think them through and write pieces on them. This is that's what he does. Although I will tell you, he waited to do all this radicalism until his father died. Like that was respectful, I thought, because I, th I would probably have killed his father. So he waited and started writing all these crazy articles um, after his father, the first Baron Altrincham, could no longer be hurt by them. Well, he also didn't own the paper or the magazine until then. So <laughs> dad wasn't going to run him anyway. So why bother writing him? <laughs> Cute. I wonder if he had a little like portfolio full of things just awaiting. <laughs> when dad dies file. <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> so I am not sure that he wishes he'd never been born, but there is a mixed bag of protesters and reporters howling outside the National Review office the next morning. They are yelling things like traitor and coward. And he's by the window like, <laughs> yeah, he really had an oh crap face on. And his staff has to, you know, bust through this group and the women are holding hands and the men are kind of helping to part the way. And How do the police know who the employees are? I guess it's just like the director said, let those people through. <laughs> they had briefcases. Maybe that was why. Time travelers take notes and a briefcase. <laughs> okay, so at the next staff meeting, one of Lord, well, actually two of Lord Altrincham's staff members have very good advice for him. Altrincham tells them at this meeting that he had gotten a phone call from a television producer inviting him on a show for an interview. And the staff is like, oh, oh, what show? And he says, Impact with Robin Day. And they all have these, oh, no faces. And the elder woman of the group says, I just wish it wasn't Day. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're scared when they hear it was him. He was called 
the quote grand inquisitor and his way was i don't give one poo what your rank is answer these questions or be embarrassed on my show actually it's good tv either way he doesn't care Ooh, that's tough. And that's like frightening to a class used to deference, I think. But Patricia doesn't agree with that assessment. She says that because it's day, that's why it's important is because he has such a big platform. It's important for you to go on this show and tell your side. And the other employee, Humphrey, agrees. He's like, look, you know, this isn't a trap that they're setting for you. You set your own trap. You set it and walked into it, frankly, by writing this article in the first place. So here's what you do. You go on that show and you act calm and you act respectful and you just lay it out. And I bet you'll reach people. They have worked with him for so long and they know. I mean, the public thinks he is just being a firebrand and insulting and this and that. But Humphrey, this employee... Humphrey knows that he's not being slanderous. He really wants to open up an intelligent dialogue with the monarchy about keeping up with the times. You can do it. You just be you and change their minds. And Humphrey believes he can do it. I think uh, Elizabeth could use a guy like Humphrey, you know, to tell her things honestly, you know, because he says you're the most unloved person in Britain, but this will be good for you. This will be good. She needs somebody like that to be that honest. I think Charteris could be that person for her, although, but he's never going to be like flat out like that. Well, so a car pulls up to that ITV office and I wonder, did someone tip off the reporters? There's not that many of them. Maybe they just kind of stand there all the time because of the nature of Robin Day's show and how he tapes it once a week, unless the producer issues a press release, which is what I think happened for later. Yeah. What if Altrincham didn't show up? True. True, true. Okay. Very good. John gets out of Uh, the car. He's got a suitcase and he's smiling to the reporters and just walks through this lovely revolving door. I love this door. It's like Tudor style glass and wood. It (laughs) it wasn't just like a sheet of glass. It was there was like frames in there. I think about this all the time when we're downtown. Lots of attention to detail used to be paid to decorative elements. And I don't think they, quote, waste money and Mm -hmm. time on that anymore. And it's a shame, really. Mm hmm. A producer meets Lord Altrincham inside and gets him ready for the interview. The producer's very businesslike and, you know, he takes him. He says he's going to need to get into makeup and that the interview is going to start in about 10 minutes. The next thing we're going to see is John is being set at the interview table. So he's we don't have to watch him get his makeup on. Well, it but, reminds me of when we went to the A&E offices to film those mini bios. Like everyone mm-hmm. who works there is like... Here's this. Sit there. Do you want some coffee? Look here. Don't be nervous. Bye. Like they have a checklist. You're sweating bullets. But to them, this is like every single day. They don't care. And it's good. I thought that it was kind of rushed. Like you come, you're on because there's no time to sweat through the armpits of your jacket. (laughs) Very true. And I bet a lot of uh, people's armpits were very sweaty sitting across the table from Robin Day. But he comes on to set. Robin Day does. And he asks his staff if he is prepared, meaning Altrincham. And a producer says, well, as ready as he can be. That appraising look from Robin Day is so scary to me. It's the top of the roller coaster. He's got notes in one hand. He's got the National English Review in the other hand. And you can tell Robin Day is ready. <laughs> Altrincham is sitting at a table, like drinking water, like his mouth just suddenly went dry because he realizes what's going to happen. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> And he tells us, because surely Lord Altingham knows, okay, you know how it is. We're recording now. We're transmitting tonight. Like, he knows. The whole room knows. That's really for us, the viewer, you know. Mm-hmm. So they do begin the interview, and that is intercut with scenes of people 
viewers reacting to things in his interview that seemed to them to be true. And they're off. I think it was so funny that they're like five, four, three. And then there's like nothing, nothing, which I think I learned on Wayne's World, (laughs) how you never say the last two because it might accidentally get clipped into the show, (laughs) which I was like, wow, Wayne's World can teach you something. That's really good. (laughs) So a large part of this, at least at the beginning, which is habitual for this show, is kind of what we saw on TV before. So we move on, we move on. Why do you hate her so very much? And Altringham says, I don't, which probably shocked everybody. And Day asked, then why criticize her? And Altringham can't answer that. He said, that's like asking an art critic why he criticizes art. That's all he's doing. He's a, he's a monarchy critic. And then he says, I'm a passionate monarchist who believes constitutional monarchy is Britain's greatest invention. And he really goes in on the Walter Badgett here, by the way. (laughs) Monarchy at its best unifies the society. It can set the tone of the nation of national character. But it's failing at that right now. That's his premise. Day scoffs. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, right, buddy. He's not buying it at first. So Robin Day, um, working largely from his notes at the beginning of an interview, you know, you kind of uh, work more from your notes until you see the shape of where things go. So he has this one sentence. He, You could tell he really wants to get out. So you expect the queen to be a wit, an orator, a TV personality, a diligent monarch, and a mother. And he thinks, ha ha, now I've got you. I'm sure that's a harder job than being the publisher of a small periodical. And he seriously thinks, okay, I'm going to make him all defensive. But rather than argue with that, Lord Altrincham actually laughs and agrees, which takes the wind out of his sails a little bit. Like, that is a seemingly impossible task. You're right. She's got to be ordinary and extraordinary. She's got to be touched by divinity and yet one of us. And then you see the queen mom like, oh, like she seems to agree with that statement. You can see it on her face. When he talks about her speaking voice, he calls it strangled and artificial. And you can see Philip (laughs) looking surreptitiously at his wife. He obviously agrees with that statement. (laughs) Altrium says she, as the boss, needs to take responsibility to get rid of the crusty old generation. And Charteris agrees with that so much that he takes his arm from around his wife and leans forward like, whoa. And Aideen is afeard at that one. (laughs) Yeah, the look on his face was like total worry. Like, wait, she could fire me? It never would have occurred to him that that could happen. And I'm so tickled looking at Lassels, by the (laughs) way, because, you know, I think he is recognizing some truth here, filing it away. Like, the world is changing. Input data. I like, Mm. I don't even think he's not that upset. Um, (laughs) And then Lord Altrium kind of threatens in the nicest way that the queen needs to realize that monarchies, well, they used to be the primary form of government in the world, are now the exception. On his way out, Lord Altrium gets applause and praise from the TV staff. I mean, at every level, from every corridor. Yeah, people came out of their offices to applaud him as he's going to. I believe that this does not happen very often. Based on the way he came in, nobody cared that he was there. But when he's leaving, they're all lining the stairs and they're lining the way out for him to walk through them. And they're just applauding him. Well, number one, they want good riveting TV, don't they? (laughs) But everyone who previewed it here had loved it. Humphrey was right. He was respectful. He was calm. He just laid out his 
premise didn't get drawn into Robin Day's um, bait to like make him get mad. It was really good interviewee, I think. And I'd be surprised if there was a video feed anywhere, but it would be very usual to have the audio feed running through speakers in the building. Uh, Every radio station I've ever been in has what's on air running through the speakers in the office. Mm -hmm. So that's why everybody's probably heard it. That went very well. The producer was really happy with it. Everybody was happy with it. He had a huge smile on his face as he's walking again through that revolving door and coming outside. And so now we see the man punching him in the face again in its proper chronological order. And there's nothing new, really, except a better view of his medals, if that's your thing. At the pub that night, the public and his staff can't stop being happy for Lord Altrigam. He is the man of the hour. Rally. (laughs) (laughs) His staff had been watching from a pub and he comes in and um, he's a rock star. His whole five person staff is there telling him how proud they were of him. It was like those small business operations where we all get wrapped up into each other's personal lives. It's like that. It's it's the office. That's their office. So they're proud of him, not only as their boss, but they're proud of him as a friend. And you can easily see that in the pub scene. It's really kind of cute. Would you like a glass of wine? He goes, how about a brandy? Like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, I think Brandy would probably be best. <laughs> it's pretty cute. It's pretty cute. So um, Aideen meets the queen coming from one of her forays into the country. She's been driving herself. There's no servant or anything. And he delivers the bad news that half of the country now thinks that Lord Altrincham had a point. <laughs> I, her clothes are killing me. Why? They're her play clothes. Yeah, she's got her Wellingtons on again. She's got her headscarf on. She's got a barn coat on. It's just the most shapeless. We are trying to look as dowdy as possible. And I guess you're right. Nobody's looking. I guess it's your only chance to wear. It's not your only chance, though, because you manage to wear those kind of clothes all the time anyway, even though they're made out of different fabrics. But, you know, holy moly. It's her style. She's comfortable in it. I I don't know. Don't you have some clothes that if you like objectively looked at them, you'd be like, oh, that's awful. Like your sick sweater. Don't you have a sick sweater? Like when you're sick, you like to put it on like a nice thick wool sweater that is really bad for your figure, but you like to wear it. That's I, that's how I think of her in these clothes. They're her play clothes. No? <laughs> Dean is dressed very nice, though. <laughs> I, he's definitely upped his game as far as his suits go since he took this position. And he's looking very, you know, nice out in this muddy driveway there's even a close-up of her boot walking through a puddle like there's splashes everywhere and there he is with his tan suit and tan shoes on maybe it's the same color as the mud so that'd be very practical (laughs) yeah no kidding well so during this whole conversation she is changing her shoes a la mr rogers um which is so gross to me it's like don't show me that but okay Um, (laughs) wait is that a barn what kind of building is that well there's the gun room and the game room. I mean, I don't know. I would just say it's part of the offices. And offices in a in a country house don't mean necessarily desks. It means like places the servants do their offices, their work. Mm-hmm. So there might mm-hmm. be a boot room. There's probably a gun room. There's probably a room where the dogs live, the hunting dogs, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It's probably attached I don't have... to the stables. Yes, yeah, stables. That's what I should have been thinking. So while she's doing this, Adina's is explaining to her that the man who hit Altringham, who they were applauding, it's not the best situation because he's a League of Empire 
loyalist. They're an extreme right doctrine. They believe in English racial supremacy. And she's like, oh, my God, this has just gotten even worse. Like, it's all well and good until, like, bad people start lining up on your side and you're one savior. And now you have to disavow him. You know, like, I've got Mm -hmm. no one except for my mother. (laughs) Really? And Dean tells her, I mean, he's just got to give her all the bad news that now the polls are showing four to one in Alteringham's favor and the newspapers are flipping. They're agreeing with him. And he tells her that Macmillan, who had planned to come up a week from now, wants to come up earlier to discuss the whole thing. She's mad. So in the game room, Queen Elizabeth confronts Michael Ledeen with the blame for writing that speech that started the whole thing. And he just takes it. Well, she has a point. But like Lord Altrincham said, the bug stops at the boss. She should have read it. Mm -hmm. And then she, in her anger, I think, she lets fly with the fact that maybe I should surround myself with younger, more dynamic people with one foot in the real world. Ooh, there's that real world again, that normal world that that Margaret wanted to go to last week. Mm. So, I mean, what can he say? What can he do? Um, Spoiler, he does not get fired or even let go until the 70s. So he's fine. Don't worry about Michael Adine. He looks sad, but he's fine. (laughs) And he leaves the room and she is just staring at the deer that she shot. It's on this table and she's just looking at it. It's just dead, laying there. Personally, I thought it was symbolic of the death of the old way of doing things. That's how I read it. And I was looking at it a lot more linear, like, I wish I was in the freaking wilderness and not in this (laughs) stupid crap. So (laughs) also, you should note that the two and then three servants that are in the room carefully do not react to anything she says. They have their backs to them. They, I mean, I would love to see their faces like whole because they don't get exposed to a lot of this political intrigue. And I can tell you there's going to be some talk in the servants hall tonight. (laughs) Definitely. So Macmillan does arrive and he ultimately advises her through a bunch of like blee, blee, blah, 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 blah. His point is she needs to squash Lord Aldringham immediately, which is not the advice she ends up following, by the way. He calls him a fire which needs to be put out. Mm-hmm. Macmillan is looking at the situation globally. He explains to her that this news is around the world. And then he points out to her that there's countries that have been overthrowing their monarchies for republics. This could happen. This is like a real thing. You know, there's Egypt. Of course, he has to bring up the Suez crisis again, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, Bulgaria, Italy, Tunisia, they've all overthrown their monarchies for republics. Is that what you want? So Queen Elizabeth is brooding and looking out the window at Charles and Anne playing outside, or maybe I was thinking just Charles. Why were you thinking just Charles? Well, going on what Macmillan just said, like, is that what you want for the monarchy to end? And then, you know, Charles is the next one. It's like, do I want to be the one who lets down the tradition for the future? And do I want to be the last monarch? What about Charles? What about? I thought you meant that it was just Charles out there playing. And I'm like, no, Anne was out there, too. They were playing tag. And I think it was like the world's longest game of tag. It did not look like a whole lot of fun, but they were laughing. And she's just sitting there staring out the window and there's very serious music playing. So I'm wondering if that was as part of Altrincham's uh, manifesto. He talks about the ordinary and the extraordinary. And that's kind of the ordinary, you know, kids playing outside and the mom looking out the window. That's very ordinary. But the situation that they're in is 
very extraordinary because they're the only ones. Mm -hmm. The royal family is it. So Patricia and Lord Altrincham are in the dentist's office for like, let's try it again. And they're talking about his invitation to meet someone from the palace. He seems to think that Charteris's rank is disappointing. <laughs> yeah, he says that uh, they want him to talk to some chap named Charteris. And he looks him up and he's like, He's the assistant private secretary. You know, he's not quite a pawn, he says, but not a bishop or a knight either. Like, they're just, you know, putting me off on some flunky to quiet me down. I'm going to give my thing and nothing's going to happen from it. Well, Lord Altrium, this man, this charterist that you're dismissing, I guarantee you got you this meeting in the first place. Although you don't know <laughs> that. You don't know charterists from a hole in the ground, but I'm just telling you, maybe less of the snobbery. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Patricia really wants him to go. She thinks that he should go in with the spirit of openness and wanting to work together and that he should bring a concrete set of suggestions. That was a very good piece of advice. That's what I think. Is it going to wreck your whole lives for me to tell you that in real life, Patricia Campbell and Lord Altrincham got married because they did? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how well this approximates how they were in real life, but if this is anywhere near them, they are just perfect for each other. They reminded me of the people on Big Bang Theory. Oh, the girl and the guy. Yeah. yeah. Like exactly <laughs> like that. My goodness. So poor old Tooth, he leaves the dentist's office again. And I think it's really cute and, you know, kind of matrimonial. Although we're jumping the gun just a little bit that she actually apologizes to the receptionist as if he's her husband. Oh, these people, they're out of control, these husbands. But he leaves. And I thought it was very telling that she automatically drives and he pulls out his writing things and he's a lefty. <laughs> Yeah, he got into the car. He got a paper and pen out of his bag by the time she could get there. And I bet she felt terrible because my guess is she was there to make sure that he finally saw the dentist. She had to have been feeling a little responsible because <laughs> it was the toffee that did it in the first place. But um, yeah, she just gets in and they, they drive off and he's just jotting notes. I thought it was a big compliment to her, though, that he was like, you're right. And then I'm going to rush out to the car and follow your advice right now. It was cute. So Lord Altrincham is on his way in a taxi to the palace for his meeting. He is still a rock star at this point. There's reporters that are waiting for him outside of his office. The police are actually waiting outside of his office. I don't know what they're expecting is going to happen. Well, he's been punched in the face already. That's true. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, he hops into a taxi. It was odd to me as an American in 2018 that the front of the taxi didn't have a door. Kind of shocked me. But apparently the hackney carriage were required into the late 50s to have an open access luggage platform in place with the front passenger seat. So that's how authentic they are. Well, I also think it's telling, very telling, that he takes a taxi. And it's very clear to us they make several points of showing us it's a taxi. They do not send the car. This is not an important meeting. Members of the press that are sitting outside his office. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought it's so cute. He's looking out the window as they pull up to Buckingham Palace and just kind of looking up at it like, I've never seen this view before. Wow. It's, you know, that's the face I saw. And then speak of another face. I want you to look at the footman's grumpy face when he looks in before he opens the door. I'm serious. He, <laughs> woo, it's not good. And then the other one that's standing at attention over on the left gives Lord A the side eye too. And if they were not work, they would fight this a-hole. Look at their faces. They're not happy <laughs> at all. 
four to one in Altringham's favor now. But Everybody not at is Buckingham in- Palace. Oh, okay. All right. Point Beckett. <laughs> like, that servants' hall is not four to one in favor of Lord. Altingham. Um. So, and Elcore leads Lord Altringham through the Majesty of the Palace, and we are shown very close ups of some Majesties of times gone by, and I do believe he is doing that on purpose to kind of intimidate Lord Altringham. Ultimately, they end up in this little warren of rooms on the top floor, the box rooms, you know. As they're going, where they're walking is getting less and less fancy. They pass through a construction site, up and up. And Altringham says, good to know I'm seeing the top man. And then he pauses to make a little joke in one sense. (laughs) (laughs) So he takes him up to that little uh, alcove room of Chartres's and um, tells him, Colonel Chartres will be with you shortly. (laughs) He's looking around this office, I mean, as you would, and he's a journalist, right? He's trained in observing things. So he's looking around the office and he sees some pictures. There's a group picture taken at Eaton and he's staring at it and he hears somebody walk in the room and he says without looking, I see we have something in common. Everyone else in the world, evidently, except for Cecil and Philip went to Eaton. Like, is there (laughs) any other school? (laughs) But then a woman's voice says, and what would that be? Surprise, it's not Charteris. It's actually the queen. Oh, she's there in her red matronly suit in her matching bag. And he's kind of stunned to silence for a minute. Well, oh, crap. It's one thing to criticize someone in the paper, you know, but it's quite another thing to face what the queen person instead of the queen institution. This is a whole other level of uncomfortable. You know, Mm -hmm. and she's learned some lessons about taking charge of the room because she kind of gives him his resume. She says, you know, you were an officer of the guards at both St. James Palace and Windsor Castle. That doesn't quite fit the profile of a revolutionary. So she's done her research on this guy. That must have blown his mind. I seriously think I mean, looking at her face at this point, she's in this room at all because Charteris advised it. She doesn't want to be there. She has chosen a younger, dynamic, loyal friend's advice just like she was supposed to, evidently. And she's kind of there against her will at this point, as far as I'm concerned. She even starts out antagonistically and sarcastically, which I kind of like. Yeah, I did too. (laughs) They settle in and she's like, can you understand me? Not too strangled, not too much a pain in the neck. Well, she's not going to make him mad either. He's fine. No, no. And I think the changing of her face happened when he tells her that just because he offered an opinion, it doesn't mean he's trying to burn the temple down. On the contrary, I'm trying to make sure it survives. And I think that's when she kind of said, okay, I'm going to take what he's saying and hear him out. I like how she says, well, those of us that live in the temple are anxious to hear your suggestions. Yeah. But she can't resist pointing out that he is basically a failed journalist and an anonymous human being. So isn't it weird that I'm sitting here taking advice from you? And I think the fact that he was kind of humble and he said, this surprises me more than it surprises you, your majesty, made it a little bit like he's just genuine. And I think people expect him to push back. And when he's like, you're right, this is just as weird for me. And it kind of takes people off guard a little bit and lets lets him get in under their shell a little. I think that's a good yeah. technique. She also asked him, you know, in this new modern age, anybody can say anything. What's left without deference? Anarchy? And he says equality. And it reminded me so much of that scene from the last episode when Tony and Margaret were on the stairs. She says intrusive and he spins it as intimate. You know, this is these women 
kind of coming to these new terms and things that they thought were bad before really have a good side to them. Look at it a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what's going on in the last episode and definitely in this one. So he has a list, um, which surprises her a little bit, but I think it's good. Um, Three things to stop and there's three things to start. Stop. Put an end to the debutante's ball because only women of a certain class should be presented to the sovereign. It's not making a unified country. It's classist. Mm -hmm. Allow divorced people to roam more freely in royal circles. (laughs) She didn't like that one very much. (laughs) She didn't like it at all, but he paints it as unkind and illegal as far as he's concerned. But, you know, the unkind part was what he led with. Mm -hmm. And then his final thing to stop is to get rid of an entire generation of courtier stuck in the past. She really stands up. She's like, you know, the thing, the intangible thing you don't see is that they are the preservers of tradition. Like she's not taking that piece of advice at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she holds tradition so very dear. Right. She's the guardian of the traditions. I think that's how she sees part of her job. And the three things that he suggests that she start, uh, the first is to open up, lower the drawbridge and let people know you the real her. She says, I don't wish to be known. And he's like, "Mm, that is as it might be, but you asked for my suggestions. I know, that's right. It's like I say that to my kids. They ask me a question and I don't give them the answer they want and they start arguing with me. I'm like, did you ask me a question? Yes. Did I give you an answer? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So um, he tells her that she should televise the Christmas speech. Ooh, radical. And that she should spend time with normal people, real people, working people. I think he made the same conclusion that Charteris and Assistant Press Secretary made that average was, woo, not good, maybe replaced with working because he did it kind of naturally. Mm -hmm. I do have to give it to Elizabeth here. She wants to be mad. And I think she is. I think she is. But also, you know, he's worked his own magic on the monarchy and she is able to recognize that his suggestions have at least merit enough to consider to put in her back pocket. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. she did come in antagonistic, but just like he did with Robin Day. And in fact, 50% of the viewing public, his calm explanations have managed to win her over too. Although she's not going to show it to him. That's a matter of pride. (laughs) When she asks him to step outside for a moment and send in her secretary, I love the look. He gives her and I, it's like friendly pleading, like, please understand that I'm here to help you. Please don't be mad. It, it was really cute. It was a really touching little look that he gives her as he leaves the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like this character quite a bit. I like that he was really smart and very approachable and um, he didn't try at all. That He was just very natural. And I did like that he stuttered. <laughs> And he does in real life, too. They had him stuttering a little bit in the show. And in real life, we'll put that video of the Impact interview. It exists. We'll put the link on our website. But he stutters through it. And he kind of the actor kind of did the same thing. So I really like that. I like this guy. I think it's probably nice for an actor to be able to have video of the person you're portraying, too. Mm -hmm. wonder how many hours Claire Foy watched of Queen Elizabeth. Ooh, and her mannerisms and this and that. I wonder. Oh, yeah. She put a lot of work into that character. Charteris goes into the office and closes the door and Altrincham waits outside for him. Then he opens the door and invites him back in. 
And Altringham is like, oh, I get to go back in. And he walks in the room and it's empty. So quickly, it's another kind of magic. It's called a side door or a trap door or a hidden passageway. Who knows? My vote is that um, cabinet on the right. (laughs) I think she's literally just standing in that cabinet because I don't know where else she is. Because I was looking at the people in that office we can see through the doorway and nobody looks weird. Like the queen's in here. Oh, I see. I just assumed there was like another door um, parallel to his desk perpendicular to the window. I love that part, though, that she magically appeared and she magically disappeared. It's kind of playful, I thought, and that's not her. I liked it. Lord Altrium is telling Patricia at the pub about his meeting. Charteris swore him to secrecy about the meeting, and he said if he told anybody, the palace would deny it. Patricia is so proud of him. She just She's beaming sitting there in the pub. He tells her that he has another meeting with a dean to discuss one or two of his recommendations. And she's just glowing, and she says, may I ask which ones? You know, they're characters we're never going to see again, right? right? But they gave them so much depth, I thought, for one episode. So a BBC van is pulling up to Sandrium, armies of men making hustle and bustle setting up inside the house. There's an infinite amount of little details they're having to attend to. And while they're doing all of that, making a giant mess, the queen is getting ready in her room and she is suffering from a giant crisis of nerves. She's sitting at a very large vanity mirror and there's people putting her makeup on. She has one of those capes on that you have at the hair salon to keep her clothing clean and she has her speech and she's trying to memorize it and Philip's kind of sitting behind her just reading a paper again and there's like three brushes in front of her like hair brushes I don't know what they did with all of them but her hair looked like the helmet like it always does (laughs) and what there's not much you can do with a brush once you've got a pound of aquanet on it right so I don't know yeah (laughs) she is just freaking out. I feel like an actress or a common showgirl. I'm memorizing lines. I'm remembering angles. I'm wearing makeup. Like she does. I think she wears lipstick all the time, but now she's probably got pancake on. So the producer takes her down to the long library, which has now really become unfamiliar and scary. She's barely holding it together, I think. And uh, so is her horizontal boob hammock dress. (laughs) Uh, That's all I'm saying about that dress. That's all you're saying? Yes. Okay. It's a gold brocade dress. And I think it is almost exact. It's not exact, but it's a very close replica of the one that Queen Elizabeth wore in this actual televised event. So they had to put her in that. And I kind of liked it. HBH. Horizontal boob hammock. Boob hammock. Now I got to make a t-shirt with that on it too. <laughs> right across the front. H and the B could be little and then an H is big. Oh, oh my gosh. I am actually writing that down. So uh, the <laughs> curtains close, the real curtains, not the set dressing curtains. They close and it is a foreign country in there. And um, she's blinded by the lights and blinking like an animal in the headlights. That's what she definitely feels like. You can tell she kind of wants to bolt, but you know, embarrassing can't everybody knows got to do it you got to go through with it philip is so excited by the way you should see him yay he's so excited but the queen mom is so nervous and i imagine it's kind of like when you watch your little kid at a piano recital it's very hard to watch someone you love do something they're afraid of and she might also be totally mad that this is being televised because later on we realize that she's not happy with this breaking of tradition at all i took it a little bit farther and i thought that she was still mad because it's a concession that they're moving into the modern world and leaving her world 
behind, you know, everything that she knew behind. And I would like to comment on her outfit. <laughs> she had this fur collared, it looks like a bathrobe, but it's not. It's a jacket. It was gloriously ugly. So the speech begins and intercut through the speech, you see scenes of different people listening to it. Um, well, they're watching it on their television. Lord Altrincham and Patricia, the Macmillans, Lassels and his dogs, which I guess he's married to now, um, Philip and the Queen Mom. So you see little pictures of them throughout this whole thing. She sits down. She arranges her notes. She arranges a book. And um, we see the hand-cranked teleprompter, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. So why do you need the notes? I guess is backup, maybe. Yeah, I wonder, too. Maybe she's just not used to reading the teleprompter. Maybe they're just like a, a blankie. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Four, three blank, blank. We're off. Happy Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, the speech that they have written for Claire Foy is exactly the one that she gave, except the real one had a lot more content to it. But what she says was in the original speech. It just wasn't the whole speech. So I love how she begins by mentioning family. She includes references to her grandfather, End quote. My family gathers around the television, too, and that is how I think of you all now. So she's taking his advice to make it very personal and relatable. I am cracking up at this, though. She refers to herself as someone whose face might be familiar from newspapers and film. And I'm like, and your money? <laughs> okay. Uh, good point. Yeah, more directly, look in your pocket. There's a picture of me there. <laughs> Also, she says, I welcome you into the peace of my own home. You know, she refers to the speed of things changing, which is why you can see me today. And Philip is so proud. His face, he's so happy. But the queen mom, to go along with your previous point, that the speed of things changing is not a benefit in her view. She looks sour, sour, sour. She looks sad, too. The world is totally different than when her husband ruled. And now... Where does she fit in? You know, what's her role? Well, and, you know, even in that movie, The King's Speech, the Queen Mom was portrayed as being someone that did stand on ceremony. Mm -hmm. Also, Helena Bonham Carter's second favorite role of mine. <laughs> and will it be your third favorite role of hers in the future? I don't know. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, she's supposed to be playing Margaret in the next version. Yeah. It's perfect. It's good. <laughs> so she quotes from Pilgrim's Progress, which is something we'll encounter in Elcott, too. It is an allegory for one's journey through life. And the quote that she gives from her book, which Claire Foy insisted be an actual copy of Pilgrim's Progress, by the way, which I thought was nice. It wasn't. They had just chosen an old looking book and she insisted on finding an actual copy just in case. I guess nerds screenshotted it. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it's a man called Mr. Valiant for Truth, and it's like his death speech. Well, again, there's the death of the old ways. So sure, I'll buy it. Maybe I'm think overthinking it. <laughs> well, part of it is, um, I do not repent me of all the trouble I have been to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who now will be my rewarder. And so um, further on in the story, when the day came that it was time for him to die, um, many people kind of came to the riverside with him to say goodbye. Hmm. And all the trumpets sounded for him to welcome him to the other side. So I wonder if it's, um, I'm going to continue the legacy kind of 
I'm with you. I'm one of you. Thank you for your support. Maybe. So we do see Lord Altrium at his house, kind of stunned at how very well this went. And it was obviously his suggestion. But he, he doesn't have like a prideful look on his face or anything. He's just like, wow, you know. It kind of looked like a love face oh. watching her. That's what I saw. <laughs> Maybe. He is a passionate monarchist. That's <laughs> right. So at the end of the speech from Queen Elizabeth, we get a very genuine smile of relief. And she looks off to the side where Philip is. Mm -hmm. In the real one, her eyes did exactly the same thing. Mm. I love that little detail. And there's applause in the room, but unlike Lord Altrium, who basked in his applause, she runs out of the room and I believe she's going to cry. And um, Philip goes after her. Um, but he's still proud. He still has a good look on his face and he leaves like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> I think she was going to go throw up or something. Yeah, <laughs> like it's over. Thank God. So there's a card six months later and it's summary. And there's some very excited people. They're all talking to each other. They're waiting outside the gates of Buckingham Palace, not waiting like, oh, I hope she comes out waiting like they're going to go in. You're not going in. Common people don't come in here. Au contraire. Um, it reminds me so much of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. Like, oh my God. They've gotten their golden <laughs> tickets and they're waiting for the gates to open. And I have to tell you, I am not sure if this ever actually happened. Yeah, I couldn't find it. I'm, what I'm thinking is, well, either I didn't have the right search terms, perfectly plausible, or maybe it was just an illustration of mm -hmm. an ongoing effort. Because um, they did, but not till 1970, start what they call royal walkabouts. We're so used to them now. People shake hands with people. They walk across and take the flower, showing their babies to the queen and this kind of thing. Well, that didn't start till 1970. And then Buckingham Palace was not actually open to the public until 1993. And I was wondering, does that mean like when you could buy tickets and go in? So there may have been an invitation-only event. I just couldn't find it. So my favorite scene... <laughs> In this whole thing. Margaret and Philip are up in a window looking out kind of idly and they have a delightful conversation about hair and about Tony. Oh, I was so excited to see Margaret. We see her in profile. She's in front of a window smoking. What a surprise. And she's wearing this lovely brushed gold leaf type necklace. She looks amazing. Philip comes in and he's wearing the same uniform as the men down on the street are wearing, which is tails and, you know, a vest. They're very dressed up, but it's not, I don't know what you call that. Is it just tails? Morning dress. Oh, there you go. I guarantee you most of them have some of it wrong because there is a guide to morning dress that is 263 pages long. Whoa. So I don't know what kind of office of protocol there is. Um, you'd wear morning dress to Royal Ascot, for example. So since there are so many rules and regulations, and it will actually make me very amused if the costumers did this on purpose, but, you know, the average Joe bus driver, even if they've been advised by the people that do the protocol at Buckingham Palace, probably got some details wrong. So I would be very interested, although mediumly, because it's a long, long set of guidelines, if any of these details were wrong on purpose. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, think about it when you tell your husband or your boys to wear certain things to an event, a wedding. They never come down wearing what you told them to. <laughs> like, what? I got that shirt on. It's got a collar. I'm like, it's a golf shirt. You can't put a tie in with it. 
<laughs> okay, so back to Philip and Margaret. Philip tells her, you look pretty. I like the dress. Oh my gosh, the dress is really pretty. It's royal blue sleeveless, kind of fitted. And he says, and the hair, it's very unregimented. And Margaret's laughing while she's smoking her cigarette. Tony knew the top person, of course, the only one that could be trusted. And Philip's like, oh, does he have a name? And of course, she can't remember it. She's going, Victor Gabon... Videl Baboon. He talked about hair as a geometric art form. That's all she knows. Of course, it's Videl Sassoon. We yeah. know. But <laughs> Philip was serious that he hates Elizabeth's hair. You know how, like, when you see somebody that has a cute skirt, you're like, where'd you get the skirt? I guess Princess Margaret's hair met his guidelines for ha cha cha because he wants to reenact that on his wife's head. Yeah. Well, it was up. It was an updo. It was very feminine and pretty and not helmety at all. Well, and of course, he asks weirdly if it's really appropriate for a man's man to know about lady hairdressers. <laughs> and she's like, Tony is inappropriate, just like flat out. But his mission is to improve her, she says. Oh, your own little Altrincham. Which she returns right back. I suppose. I suspect he's better in bed. <laughs> yeah, this was a great scene. <laughs> you get the feeling that if Philip and Margaret had gotten together, that would have been a dangerously inflammatory combo. Yeah, no. They're too much alike. You can't have that. You can't have two of them. So the people from outside are being admitted into the palace. The two of them look out the window at the people that are being ushered in to Buckingham Palace, the commoners, and they're like, oh, God, look at them. Really? Could you be any more snotty? I mean, we know Margaret's a snob. We know Philip's a snob. But the butler downstairs does not look like a snob at all. He's not being snotty. He's really smiling. And the footman, too, which I was happy to see. Well, he, maybe they knew the people that were coming in. Maybe it was their neighbor. Oh, maybe they got to nominate people. Maybe. I mean, how else are you going to find the normal people unless you ask another normal person? Oh, my God. Can you imagine, like, <laughs> charterists or somebody coming down to the servants' hall? <laughs> Hello, does anybody know? any normal people <laughs> that we can allow in yeah okay so she's supposed to be inviting this diverse group and other than that one indian family they're all white that's not that diverse yeah it's only like two-thirds less diversity than at margaret's fancy trendy party <laughs> that's true well, you kind of intercut little scenes from what's happening downstairs with the queen mom and queen elizabeth trying to decide which people on the list each person is. Um, evidently, there is a car dealer, Harry the Hammer Jones, who's a boxer, a restaurant owner, a bank clerk, a bus driver. <laughs> and then they said, and a woman policeman, although women had been policemen since, you know, World War One. Really, it's not super uncommon. But I mean, it's super uncommon at Buckingham Palace. Definitely. So the ladies are on their way to meet the common folk and the queen mom is having an anxiety attack about the future. That's really all I can characterize it as. She's worried that the monarchy is over, like the death of a thousand cuts. Don't worry, queen mom. From 2018, you're still doing okay. Well, you are not doing okay. <laughs> Sorry. No. But the monarchy, the family, the company is doing okay. Yeah, she, I don't know, she's carrying on and on. She's just really sad, I think, that all these changes are happening. And I think she is thinking that she's the one that's irrelevant now. You know, she was talking about Altrincham's paper being irrelevant, not that whole line. I wonder if she thinks she's irrelevant at this point because she just carries on. She's like, the stings and bites we suffer as it slips away, the monarchy, bit by bit, piece by piece, our authority, our absolutism, our divine rights. 
oh my God. But you know what? <laughs> get this. We see her freaking out. And in fact, one of her lines is where we get the episode title. She says, <laughs> we've gone from ruling to reigning to nothing at all. Marionettes. But little does she know, this queen mom, that queen mom, real life queen mom becomes one of the most popular members of the royal family. Once people are seen, once people are out and about, that girl gets big, big cheers. People love her. Yeah. If only she had yeah. known and she wouldn't have to be so afraid. That's true. I mean, that's a life lesson right there. Oh. The things we can learn from watching television. <laughs> They do make a special point of putting on their gloves. And I was like, is that for sanitary purposes? I mean, because ladies in the 50s did wear gloves for all occasions. So I think we're supposed to think that it's like, ooh, we're going to touch dirty commoners. But I think it's, you know, put on the formal wear. We're, we're mm -hmm. going in in front of guests. The queen mom makes another dig. Like, well, I'm having them rotate the guests every 15 minutes. So if you get a dud, just hold on. No kidding. And so the ladies sally forth. The doors open. They go with well-brought-up smiles to meet the common folk. Um, they make some little small talk. I was very happy when she got introduced to Harry the Hammer. She's like, oh, I've heard so much about you, <laughs> which I thought was cute. And then the dogs come and she calls them, oh, the dog dogs. So underneath this little receiving line, some text informs us that ultimately most of Lord Altrincham's suggestions were implemented. And then further, it moves to a black screen with more text. The monarchy later admitted that Lord Altrincham had done as much as anyone in the 20th century to help the monarchy. Well, the last debutante ball was 1958, um, although there were 1,500 people at it. I think there was just panicked mothers. Oh, no, let's get my 15-year-old up there, too. But Margaret had the best quote about the last debutante ball. She said, we had to stop it. Every tart was getting in. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, the point was you had to be presented by someone who had herself been presented. Mm -hmm. And so impoverished gentlewomen were offering their services for money to the riff and the raff. Right. So it was getting a little bit less exclusive, perhaps, and which was probably good. But anyway... <sighs> So it was kind of played off like, well, it's time, you know, but every tart was getting in. It's kind of rich from someone who literally just told the queen's husband that her boyfriend was good in bed. But OK, every time. <laughs> um, so they did televise the speech. That was another suggestion. Um, she didn't get rid of a whole generation of courtiers. I mean, Aiden didn't leave until 72. Lassels didn't leave till 81. But maybe she heeded the advice of young people more like within the system. Well, we might see in future episodes or in fact, that just might remain a mystery. But nominally, that whole generation stayed and they didn't get dismissed as he had wanted. Well, as he had suggested. Correct. So it they, was just a suggestion. Yeah. She didn't have to follow through on it. Yeah, but I do, I do think she started listening to um, different types of people. I think that opened her eyes to the reality that she was surrounded by all these people that were kind of stuck in the past and they could hold on to the treasure of the traditions but she needed to put those treasures out in the world and the only way she can do it is through younger people so I think that's what this did for her. So in 1963, Lord Altrium renounced his title and became John Grigg. And then we see a photo of the real John Grigg. He married Patricia Campbell in 1958. So only a year from now, they're going to get married. Yay. Yay. <laughs> the review closed in 1960. Um, Not yay, or I don't know. No, I don't think that's a yay. <laughs> so he had run for office. This is while his father was still alive. And so as he was not an actual peer at that point, he 
could run for the House of Commons. It was a failed bid. And then once his father died, lords are automatically placed in the House of Lords. You're not allowed to run for Commons. And several peers had agitated, you know, because they had won seats in the House of Commons. And now they just got disqualified because they were, you know, put the back of the hand on your forehead here because they were forced to become lords and join the House of Lords. But that's not where they wanted to be. That's not where they felt the power was or the energy or, you know, in fact, all the favors they had done. Like all their political history was in this house and they agitated to be able to renounce their title. Well, that was not legal. They could not do it. Until the Peerage Act of 1963, which allowed hereditary peers to renounce their titles. So actually 18 people did. It's actually not um, forever. It just kind of puts the title in abeyance until their heir takes over. Like once that guy dies, it snaps back mm-hmm. to the next guy. So it's not like you're disenfranchising your whole, your son and your grandson and all your future descendants. It's just for the purposes of your life, you are now a commoner mm-hmm. until you're dead. And then you can be dead commoner and your son <laughs> is the Lord. <laughs> So Lord Altrincham did take advantage of that um, with the intent to run for a seat in the House of Commons. Again, a failed attempt. He never did make it um, into office. He actually went on to write some biographies for people. So he's a writer for the rest of his life. All right. Well, so what we're left with in this episode, obviously, the speed of society changing. We're really getting a viewpoint on that. You know, they did make a special point of talking about the lady policeman. Radical stuff is happening. Uh, The availability of... TV, perhaps, was another um, bit of society changing, well, freedom of the press um, Mm -hmm. and the way people felt like anyone could now say anything in complete safety because, well, not complete safety. You don't get free from the repercussions, but you can sure say whatever you want. Right. So ideally, we'll see this more children thing isn't happening. I don't know. I don't know about the helmet if it's going to be too off-putting. We'll have to see. (laughs) Or will his loins just take over? Yeah, because I do not think there's a new haircut, (laughs) Philip. I think you're going to have to overcome. I just need to see more Margaret and Tony. Well, Margaret and Tony have next leveled. We have been informed that they have taken it a step further than we saw them last time. So that's something we're going to have to explore. Mm -hmm. I don't... Favorite outfits? I didn't really have any. I mean, I did like her Christmas outfit. You wouldn't because she had open-toed slingbacks on. (laughs) in the boob hammock but um i did like that one of all of them i was looking there really wasn't anything that stuck out at me i stand firm behind the nameless and lineless secretary that is sitting by the window at the first staff meeting at the national review i'm i'm just i don't know how possible it is to get a screenshot but she has a very very fabulous dress on it was kind of i you know i hate to say wasted on an extra but it was a really pretty dress well maybe they didn't have anybody else that it would work. It. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. little wasted dress. Um, so yeah, I'm standing firm on that being the best dress and the worst. I mean, okay, so I guess I can buy that the whole raincoat Wellington outfit was not meant for public consumption. So I'm going to go with boo hammock. That's my worst dress. <laughs> okay, so that's my favorite and your least favorite. I actually love that very much. <laughs> well, because I've already put the clean mom out in a different category. There was worst. I don't know. I just didn't like that brain hat outfit. It was. Oh, yeah, that was bad. Yeah, it was too big for her. It was red. And I mean, not that red is a bad color, but I don't know. I just I didn't like it at all. Well, as to links, we obviously can link you to the first Christmas speech televised. Um, The promised information about bagpipe regalia um (laughs) how about the entire version of zadok the priest by handel because you know sometimes in the pickup line you really need to turn it up um the history of the league of empire loyalists if you want to fall down that particular rabbit hole 
it's not a cheerful one. And um, the picture I have for the metal listing for Mr. Burbage, which seemed like a totally minor thing to spend $2.95 on, but there it is. (laughs) If you would like to apply for jobs at Buckingham Palace, I'll just link you to the job application. There you go. If you want to set the clocks, right? Oh, that job isn't open now, right? That job's not open, but I will tell you it was open in 2012 and somebody got it. And then it was open again in 2013. If they died or they failed or they dropped something, I don't really know what happened, but um, you never know when it's going to be open again. So we'll just link you to that. You have to fill out a profile first because, you know, not every Tom, Dick and Harry makes it through the first screening, but we wish you luck. So um, (laughs) also Pilgrim's Progress full text is at Gutenberg and um, it's going to come up probably in some History Chicks episodes. So you might as well read it now. (laughs) I have a uh, link to the history of the London Underground and I have a link to the video of Elizabeth meeting Marilyn Monroe. She looks really excited when she comes up. Well, that should do it for our coverage of The Crown, Season 2, Episode 5. Stay tuned, and we will see you next time. Bye. Do you know anyone who watches The Crown? Spread the word about the recapery, won't you, and tell a few friends. Also, we've got a Pinterest board set up at The Recapery for Season 2. If you'd like even more rabbit holes to travel down, just head on over there. And most importantly, don't miss our original podcast, The History Chicks, where we tell you the stories of women throughout history as only we can. See you next time.